The person without a purpose is like a ship without a rudder. Thomas Carlyle. Hey, hey, welcome back, friends and family. Welcome to a brand new episode of Intentional Living and Leadership with me, your host, Cal Walters. First of all, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here today. I hope that this can be a resource for you on your journey to live a more intentional life, to be a more effective and inspiring leader, and to make your highest contribution to the world. A little bit about us, if you're new, we release a new episode every other Tuesday, so please hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts and you will never miss an episode. You can also go to my website, calwalters.me, and you can check out all of our previous episodes, a lot of great leaders and a lot of inspiring content. For those of you that have been listening for a long time, you've probably figured out by now that I like to kind of nerd out on leadership and personal growth. And I'm sure at times I drive my wife nuts because I love thinking about this stuff. I love thinking about how I can grow, how I can be a better leader, and I love it when I get the chance to sit down and ask questions to other leaders and learn from their experiences. And about a month ago, I took a new role leading an office of prosecutors and paralegals, and the job is hard. But what it's also done is it's absolutely reinforced for me how important leadership is and how important it is as a leader to lead yourself first. You know, it's always great when your experiences affirm something that you're already doing. And once again, being in a formal leadership role after spending so much time thinking about leadership over the past year is a direct reminder to me that we always have something to learn, always have room to grow, and that growth as leaders can multiply the growth of those around us. And that's why I am so pumped about today's content. Today, I'm going to bring you an interview with Stephen Shedletsky. Stephen is the head of brand experience at Simon Sinek Inc. And he's been working with Simon Sinek, who many of you know Simon from his viral TED Talks or best-selling books. Uh, It was so fun to talk to Stephen to get his perspective on working with Simon and working with leaders from all walks of life around the world. At Simon Sinek, their vision is to help leaders create a culture where people feel safe, inspired, and fulfilled at work. What an incredible mission. So often I think we get focused on getting the job done, which is really important that sometimes we lose sight of our people being fulfilled and what they do. And I love that that's their vision. And one of the big ways that they do that is by helping people and organizations find their why. So often as individuals and organizations, we get so focused on the what and the how that we completely lose sight of why we're doing things. And this is true at a macro and a micro level. So I'm really excited about this episode. You're going to get to hear Stephen walk us through how to discover your why by sharing his journey and the process that he has been using with countless people around the world to help them find their why. So sit back, grab a notepad, and enjoy these great insights from Stephen Chudletsky, Head of Brand Experience at Simon Sinek Inc. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Cal. I'm really excited to, to have you here, and I'm excited to share your insights with the audience. Uh, first question I have for you, since you have such an interesting job and an interesting perspective, what is it like to work with the great Simon Sinek? How's that? <laughs> the great Simon Sinek. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's fantastic. He's a, he's a friend. He's a mentor. He's someone I look up to. Um, you know, and he, 
he's a living embodiment of the things he writes. Every single one of his books is semi-autobiographical. So he's had an experience that profoundly changed him. And he, he's worked really hard to put it into words such that others could benefit from it. Um, and he, he's the real deal. He has a cause bigger than himself. He happens to represent it, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, just like, you know, Steve Jobs is, is Apple and Apple is Steve, is Steve Jobs. Simon Sinek is Starbuth Wine, Starbuth Wine is Simon Sinek, right? Um, and, and he is inspired, safe, and, and fulfilled. But it's fantastic to work with a leader who uh, is very clear on the world he wishes to live in and has devoted his life and career to advancing it. And I'm, I'm proud to, to stand shoulder to shoulder with him and march alongside in front, beside, and, and, and behind him to make progress toward a world in which the vast majority of us, you, me, our kids, everyone, uh, feel inspired, safe, and fulfilled by their each day. I love that. I, it's nice to hear you say that. I, sometimes as you get closer and closer to these bigger figures, at least in my experience, there have been times where it's, it's been great because it confirms what I hope to find. And there's also been times where you find that maybe the public persona is not quite uh, what you would expect, maybe not an authentic embodiment of the principles they teach. So I love that. And I also think, and I had David Marquet on uh, a month or so ago, and, and one of his points is I think one of the best ways to truly judge leader is by their, the people that work, not, not necessarily under them, but with them. Um, and so I love that, you know, high praise from someone who gets to work with them on a, on a daily basis. What would you say is the biggest leadership lesson that you've learned from working with them? Um, I think the biggest, le- so, I mean, one, he's human like the rest of us, you know, he puts his underwear on one leg at a time like you and I, you know, um, and I think the biggest thing I've learned and that he embodies is that as individuals we're junk and together we're remarkable. You know, each of us has strengths, but none of us has all of the, all the strengths. And so, you know, I think the biggest lesson he's imparted is that we don't have to pretend we know all the answers. Uh, it's actually better if we share what we know and more importantly, share what we don't know. Um, and, you know, and in times like, like these, when, when, you know, our own business is shifting with, uh, with, with coronavirus, I mean, we used to hop on planes every week and go meet people not happening now. And so our team is living through the infinite game right now. We're going through our own existential flexibility and it's fantastic. Is it scary at times? Of course. Um, but, uh, I feel so lucky that I have an amazing team, him and our other, all of our other leaders um you know everyone on our team is, is a leader because everyone is leading and uh just amazing that we get to figure this out and we get to figure this out together yeah that's great you mentioned just how obviously he's human we're all human he has this ability to sh- to make public and admit when he doesn't know things what do you think is the balance Cause i think sometimes as leaders we want to feel right we want to look right. We want to be competent. In the world that I work in, especially in the legal profession, there's this sense of if you're going to be the leader, you have to be the best lawyer there is. Mm-hmm. But I think it, we, we seem to have found that leadership is not necessarily being a technocrat all the time. Sometimes that's helpful. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the balance between being highly competent, demonstrating that to your team so that it instills confidence in them, and also being authentic and humble enough to admit 
when you're wrong? Like, what, what do you think is the proper balance? Or where, where have you seen maybe good examples of that uh, in your work? I think context is everything. So, you know, it's the context of your job. If you're CFO and someone says, you know, or the book's balance and the CFO, CFO off the cuff says, I have no idea. Like, how does that make you feel? <laughs> you know, Simon's role is chief visionary officer. He needs to embody optimism. He needs to point us north and forward. Uh, and that's his job. His job is not to be the CFO. That's our CFO's job. And so I think context is, is everything. Um, it's, it's often why when we do work with leaders and organizations on articulating, uh, discovering and articulating their just cause or why, we leave it up to them who they wish to invite in the room. Because for Simon to say to one of our more junior members of, of our team, I have no idea where we're going or what our vision is, that's a problem. Yeah. But, he, but he can say it to our president. So I think context is, is everything. You need to be mindful. You need to be responsible with what you're communicating and with whom you're communicating. It's okay for the CFO to go to our president. I need help. I'm having trouble figuring this one out. I need training. I need a mentor. Like, that's fine. Um, you're allowed to admit struggle uh, amongst colleagues. It's why the job of leadership is so lonely and we need to do it together. That's why we have young presidents organizations and entrepreneur organizations because we need a safe network when we can go, here's how I'm struggling. I have no idea what, what to do. You, you can't do that when you're leading people unless it isn't your domain of leadership. Then I think it's actually a responsibility to go, hey guys, I'm not great with numbers. Head of finance, I need your help on this one. Help me business model this out. Yeah, that's really good. It makes me think of what Brene Brown has said with vulnerability. It's kind of vulnerability with boundaries. It's an ability to be real, not feel like you have to be right, but also when you're going to be vulnerable, which I think is an important part of leadership, it's with boundaries. And it's like you said, in the right context. Um, and maybe that's more of a challenge for a middle management than it is for a CEO. I don't know. I think um, it's interesting as we study leadership, some of the principles uh, and some of these lessons might be different, I think, if you're a middle manager. Do you find that that's true, uh, that sometimes these principles that you teach work well for a CEO, but maybe are more difficult if you're like most of us in middle management? Yeah, so, I mean, these concepts work at their best when they're adopted from the top down. That's, yeah. called, ev that's called evolution. Yeah. Um, the other way to create change is revolution, which mm. typically is more violent, uh, oftentimes less successful. Yeah. Uh, there are winners and losers in, in, in revolutions, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't necessarily think it's, it's, it's infinite. I think evolution is healthier. And inside of organizations, the tail can wag the dog. Meaning if you choose to be the leader you wish you had at a middle management level, and you keep doing the right things, you keep purpose and people first, and in time the results show, some, especially when the results show, someone will pay attention and ask you, what are you doing differently? And you can say, well, I'm starting with why and I'm putting my people first. Can we do that? Yeah, of course. You want a promotion? Sure. Um, so the number of you know, executive leadership teams that I've encountered that are high trust and high performance, a lot. 
um, a lot of them. I, I can't give you a percentage. Um, and I think, I think my, my perspective might be a bit biased because the organizations and leaders that are drawn to work with us tend to already believe in what we preach. So they're already on the, on the journey. But I've encountered many organizations whose executive leadership team gets it, embodies it. The question is, how far does it go down the chain? Because yeah. as human beings, we are not designed for scale. We're a tribal species. This is Dunbar's number. We are designed to live in tribes of about 100 or 150. And so for any CEO who says, I care about all 10,000 of my people, they're lying, biologically wrong. Like you just can't. And all you can do is care for your 150 so that they care for their 150. That's all. And so for executive leadership teams, of course you create a highly trusting and a highly performing team, but you make it very clear that it has to be passed on. You make it clear that we do this for each other, not for free. There's a price to pay and the price to pay is your leadership, that you have to ensure that your team is even more highly performing and highly trusting than this one. That's, that's, the, that's the deal. Um, and when it comes to being a, a middle manager, I mean, we just don't teach people. It's like, would, would you ever go go and get surgery done with a surgeon who doesn't have any training? No. Of course not. But why are we doing the same thing with, with, with leadership? We put people into leadership roles and we do not teach them. And yeah. it's a skill. It's a practicable, it, it's a muscle, right? It's the muscle yeah. of, of putting the interests of others ahead of your own. Um, it's the muscle of service and it's hard. It's the muscle of empathy and listening and patience. It's, it's awful. Like, it's like parenthood. I love my kids. Do I like them every moment? Heck no. Please, <laughs> heck no. But I love them to bits, and I wish to see that they become better human beings than, than, than me. That's leadership. And so too many people, when they, when they rise into a role of middle management, they're now responsible for the people who they used to do that job. And you're better than them at that job. That's why you got promoted. Your responsibility is now not to give them the fish, it's to teach them how to fish. And yeah. we need to teach people how to do that. And there are some of us that are more natural in our skills that or attributes that translate in, into leadership, but it can be taught. Um, and it's simply the practice of, are you okay? How can I help you? Share the truth with me. You're not going to get punished. Where, where don't you have the skills, whether it's the technical skills or the real human skills to thrive in your job? I'm here to help you be successful. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, and especially if I, as I reflect back on my own leadership, when, I've, when I arrived in these leadership positions, I, I had some training. But even with training, it, all of those other forces start to come at you. The pressure from the top the numbers you have to meet, the mission you have to accomplish, the mm -hmm. fear of failure, you know, all of these things. And I, and I think that is probably why there's even a, a business for you all. Why, why do you, why is there demand for hmm. the need for this type of ins inspirational leadership? And I think it's because partly, and I'd be interested to get your take. I think partly it's because we as humans often think very short term. We think, how do I accomplish the mission today, regardless of how that impacts the human being on the other side of it? We get very focused on things instead of people. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on why this is even in demand? The, the type of, and I've heard Simon say this. I, I like. I, he's, I think he's said before. I don't even. Uh, I, I wish that there wasn't demand for what we offer. 
Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on why there is demand or, or why it is even difficult to sure. be an inspiring leader that focuses on humans predominantly versus the mission? Sure. Let's see how well I can do with this one. I may not nail the answer, but I have some thoughts. I mean, yes, Simon often says um, he's embarrassed that he has a career, right? Um, You know, he teaches people kindergarten stuff, how to treat people nicely, how to focus on what's most important. Um, But the, and he says the fact that there is demand for the work means there's an opportunity and there's an opportunity to make things better. Um, I mean, per, per your earlier commentary around mission success and a number over our head. I mean, I'm a big proponent of uh, suffering is done alone, struggling is done together, and that we should struggle together. And so long as you have an organization in which it is very clear what success is, this is what David Marquet talks about with, um, you know, the role of the leader is to give their control away, right? But yet you can't just give your control away without the job of the main leader, of the visionary leader, which is to provide mission clarity or vision and then competency, right? Those are the two pillars. If you want to really empower people, you can't just go away handing out responsibility. That's irresponsible. You must, you must teach your people what is most successful for Marquet and a submarine. It's the safety of my crew and the well-being of this ship. And don't let the enemy go to where we don't want them to go. Right. And then it's, it's his responsibility to bang that drum. That is success. That is success. For us at Simon Sinek, it's we teach people how to inspire their, their people. We wish to create a more inspired, safe, and fulfilled world. Everything we do has to help leaders adopt an infinite mindset such that we can move closer to this world in which the vast majority of people feel inspired, safe, and fulfilled. Got it. Our job is to preach, teach, and engage. Got it. Like, I'm good. Now the competencies. What are the technical skills? And the human skills, confidence, right, that we need our people to have. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I think, I mean, what you're speaking to, Cal, is, is the split. When you hire someone who hires someone who hires someone, and now all of a sudden you're hired to perform a job spec rather than see that you're not just a cog in a wheel, see yeah. what is the wheel accomplishing. And, and so it's the job of leadership and for us ourselves to clearly understand how our role helps to move the crusade forward. If we don't know, we have to ask. And if we don't get an answer, something's not going right. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think um, what I mentioned before about scale, we're not designed for, for, for scale. Um, and the other thing is I think uh, in many ways, technology can get in the way, yeah. which is so interesting right now is everyone is working remote right now and i'm sure more people will be working remote after this pandemic thing is done not sure when you're releasing this podcast but i'm sure this will be relevant yeah still um, still will be relevant no doubt yeah is um technology is fantastic for um uh, uh coming across new information access to information it's fantastic for speeding a transaction it's fantastic for forming a connection doing what we're doing right now yeah. but it cannot replace intimacy yeah. It cannot replace forming strong bonds and trusting relationships. It can start and help, but like I once fell in love with someone over Skype, met them in person. Now, nah, <laughs> not there, you know? And so um, our team is 100% remote and we work very hard 
to form relationships and trust. And we strive to get together in person as often as we can. Um, so those are a few thoughts there. I hope that helps. I think you nailed it. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point too about technology and just the email. We have a rule in my organization from our top, from our top leader uh, that face-to-face has to be the first mode of communication that you try. It's always tempting to pick up the phone, send an email. No, get out of your office and walk down. And if you have the opportunity, obviously you don't right. always have that opportunity. And then the next, oppor- the next, if you can't do that, which that, sh- but I think too, we've fallen into a world where it actually, it's working against the grain, at least for a lot of us to pursue face-to-face because we're so tempted to send a text message, an email. So it takes that self-regulation to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I think that that's a good point uh, about technology. Yeah. I mean, email, email and text and uh, any form of a text message, not just you know text messages, but anytime you're typing, it's still a useful tool. Here's the report that yeah. you requested. But anytime it, it delves into relationship building or emotions, no, 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 no. Like, and it's open to interpretation and tonality, and it's just yeah. not a good recipe. So in our organization, we don't have offices or water coolers, but this just happened last week. Our COO needed to put a calendar invite in. It was last Friday. There was an invite that was going to pop up into my calendar on Monday, and she gave me a call just to say, this is coming, this is what it is, this is the context, because she knows me that if I got a calendar invite with little context or just the context written in, but it was new and different, I, I, it wouldn't be me operating at my best. Yeah. And so though she had no time, right? We only had five minutes, both of us, but she called, I picked up. The first thing we did is we asked about each other. Her daughter is Frontline's emergency room uh, nurse, uh, my dad's Frontline's doctor. First thing we did was talk about that. And then she said, I need to let you know there's a calendar invite coming. Here's what it is. Any questions? I know. No, I went great. Love it. It gave me the weekend to start thinking about how I could show up and add value and ideas to that meeting. Uh, so even without in person, we can use technology to our advantage. That's a great example. Uh, I was. I heard the other day. I think it was Juliet Font from Whitespace was talking about this. The difference between a two D conversation and a three D conversation. And a two D could be something very simple, like I just need to translate send you some information like, hey, good to go. Hey, no problem. And then there are those conversations that have to be 3D. We have to look at each other. We have to, at a minimum, talk over the phone because there's that, like you get, like you're getting at there, there's that need for connection and human conversation when sometimes there is a 2D, but a lot of times it needs to be 3D, but we have that tendency to just try to make it a 2D conversation. And it's messy because sometimes, like, you got to be really disciplined. You can email and say, here's the social graphic asset that's a draft. You can't say any feedback. You have to say, call me with the feedback you have. Yes, that's good. Or if there's any feedback you have, let's schedule a call. Yeah. Because as soon as you start writing bullet points on feedback, A, it's inefficient. B, totally. you, feedback is ideas and brainstorming and you're always better when you talk it aloud. So you're actually stro- like you're, you're depriving yourself of creative opportunity. Yeah. So it's, it's messy because sometimes what starts as an email thread has to 
or is more effective when you get to collaborate. I love that. Collaboration is not done over email or a Google Doc. Yeah. I love, I love people say, well, let's work asyn- asynchronous, asynchronously on this. That's <laughs> code for let's make this ineffective and inefficient. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. That's a great way. And I think just having that framework in your mind and, and creating that in your organization makes a big difference. So just thinking, okay, is this something I should have face-to-face? It, because I understand there's value mm. in that. Um, so Stephen, I want to take us back about 10 years to back when Start With Why was published. And I understand that there's going to be a new, uh, I think an updated version of Start With Why for the 10-year anniversary. I just saw Simon was doing a book club, which I'm excited about. But um, yeah. so Simon did this viral TED Talk, which as of this recording, it has over 50 or 49 million views, which is just insane. And it's this concept of Start With Why in the golden circle. First of all, why do you think that that has struck such a chord with so many people? Something so simple. Well, part of Simon's genius is an ability to take a profound concept and, and articulate it in simple terms. So the, the number of people, and I've thought this as well, of like, I could have written that book. <laughs> it's like, great, why didn't you? you know? um, but his, his genius isn't necessarily taking these foreign things that you've never heard of before and isn't. No, he, he takes ideas that are common sense and codifies them such that we can use them uh, and use them effectively and, and powerfully. Um, and so I think they resonate so much because I think we're fed up as a society. I think we're fed up as a consumer of, as being seen as a transaction or an asset to be marketed to. Um, I, it, it, it's rooted in our deep human desire to feel like we belong and to feel like we have a sense of, of meaning. Um, so I think it struck a chord because it's not a business message. It's a human message. Um, and business is one of the most human things that has ever existed. It's just been bastardized for the past 30 to 40 years. Yeah. I thought it might be interesting. So several months ago, I had uh, Dr. Joe Ross come on. He's a PhD in organizational psychology, and he helped general officers and admirals transition from the military. And one of the things he said, they said there were three keys. One, how much money do you want to make? Two, where do you want to live? And three, you need to find your why. And he said the first has to be finding your why. Mm-hmm. He said you can't prioritize money or location or you're probably not going to be fulfilled. And I thought that was a really good point. So I thought it'd be neat for you to, for, to one, uh, if you're comfortable, if you could tell us what is your why and what was your process for discovering your why? Sure. My process is the same as what we recommend for all, all others. So I'm not unique, which is good. Um, when I joined this organization, which is, uh, gosh, uh, almost nine years ago, um, like many others, inspired by Simon. And I kind of outsourced my why discovery to him. I just went, you inspire me. His why is to inspire people to do what inspires them. And I went, my, my why is just your why. Yeah. Um, and it turned out that was pretty disempowering uh, because we each have our own why. We each have our own unique contribution and, and impact based on our own life experiences. Uh, and I realized that my why nests underneath his that, you know, he is a visionary to me. I've devoted my life and career to help advance his movement. It doesn't belong to him, but it's the movement that he's articulated 
and is part of leading. There are many leaders of this movement to create a more inspired, safe, and fulfilled world. And so about two years into being on our team, uh, uh, a senior leader from our team said, all right, let's do your why discovery. And so I went through the same process that is in our book, Find Your Why, that's in our online course. Online course, it's, it's the process. The process is, is you think of the past. Our why is our origin story. Our why is who we are and who we are is where we come from. Um, we're, we aren't born with a why. Our why is formed through the meaningful moments and experiences in our lives that have shaped who we are and how we view the world. There's a nature and nurture piece to this. But by the time we're about 16 to 20 years old, our why is fully formed. And it's the reason why our 20s are so pivotal, because the decisions we make in our 20s are either, to Dr. Ross's point, it's about the what stuff, like uh, title, salary, where you live, or it can be about the why and how stuff, who you are, what you value, what you, what you believe. I mean, I started my career climbing a ladder, and I realized don't want to climb that. And I was very fortunate that I, I experienced a couple jobs in my early 20s that I hated. And it doesn't make, make the people around me or the institutions evil, just wasn't the right fit for me. And so fortunately, I joined this team because I was so inspired by, by Simon. I outsourced my why to him and then finally did mine. And I shared um, specific stories from my past, my early childhood memories, my school-aged years, those teachers and mentors who helped shape who I am, um, the fulfilling and unfulfilling experiences I had in my career with family, with friends, all of it, right? And what's cool is you don't need to go through, you know, the the uh, nine-hour trilogy, Lord of Lord of your of your life. <laughs> you you can share once you start sharing two, three, four five, six stories, especially with someone who's, who's, who uh, is a good listener, the patterns just stand out. And you'll never see it because you can't be objective with yourself. We can only be subjective with ourselves. Yeah. So the, the process very simply is you share these specific stories of times in your life that stand out. They could stand out because they were peaks or they could stand out because they're valleys. Right. And those valleys are moments in your life that you don't wish to revisit, but have they ever made you the person that you are today? Help shape you. Right. One of mine is my my grandmother's funeral. So hard, would never want to relive it. But the connection I had with my mom, amazing. Right. Um, and so you share these specific stories with a partner. And after five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten stories, your partner can begin to share back with you the themes that they're that they're hearing. And the words that you said and the words that you kept saying and, and you, you form it into, into this format, which is two blank. So that blank, you, the first blank is your contribution. The thing that you do at your best, your top strength, the thing you can't not do. Um, and your impact, which is the world you wish to live in. Your impact is what you feel all human beings, yourself included, deserve to experience and feel. Um, and so I made it through my why discovery. I've iterated my, my why over the years. And my why is to engage with people in meaningful ways so that we connect with depth and live in a more fulfilled world. Wow. I love that. I think in the uh, Find Your Why book, it talks about, I think Simon says it also in his Start With Why, is that your why is born out of pain. Is that just kind of his story of when he started to start to think through this he, he mm -hmm. kind of hit a place where he wasn't fulfilled or is that 
something you think is true for all of us as we're discovering our why? I, I think that um, the, the only time or the time to find your why is when you want to find it. And so when everything's going hunky-dory, oftentimes we'd feel that we don't need to find it. Um, that, that notion of your why is, is born from pain uh, resonates with Simon's story, resonates with mine too, because uh, I, m- the impetus for me to sort of put a, a chiropractic alignment to my, to my life was the fact that I was so out of balance with my values and beliefs. I mean, my first job, uh, I walked in and a thousand people were laid off from the organization on my first day. And I saw the impact on people's, not just their productivity, but their physical and mental health. Um, And so my why, the impetus for me to find my why was born from, I felt unmotivated, unsafe, unfulfilled, uninspired, and I wanted to feel the exact opposite. So. Um, our why is born from peaks and valleys. Um, our, our, and one of the places it's very valuable to look for our why is what are the struggles that we have overcome or are overcoming and how can we help others go through that struggle as well? It's step 12. I mean, it's step 12, which is service. And, and better than most, those in military understand this, that if you wish to overcome any struggle, help others do the same. If you wish to beat the disease of alcoholism or PTSD, you got to serve another. You just, you just have to. And as soon as you stop, you'll fall off. It's just, it's just a human tenant. I love this one quote that um, it's, it says that your vision is only actionable if you say it out loud. If you keep it to yourself, it will remain a figment of your imagination and, and hearing you talk too, it sounds like at first you just accept, accepted Simon's why is your why. Mm-hmm. But then as you went through the process and you were sharing it with your facilitator, that it, these, these themes came out pretty clearly to you. Uh, is that kind of what this is, is pulling something out of you that already exists or putting words around uh, something that's inside of you in your past that maybe you haven't fully actualized. So that's one question. Then also, were you surprised by the themes that came out? Was there kind of a light bulb moment or was it like, ah, no, that's who I am. Like that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. So, so a couple things and help me Cal, cause there's a few points in here. So let's navigate through this one together. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, vision without execution is, hallucination. So um, that's why the the process for this is, you know, discover, articulate, embed, activate. So discover, oh, this thing exists. I have one. Articulate, go through the process to help you put it to words. Helping you put it to words gives you a tool. Um, That's why we also recommend like our why is just words and it comes from experiences and it can be ethereal at some point at some times. And so it's really important to surround yourself with physical symbols and reminders of your why. So like I have my grandfather's initial ring on my desk. I have uh, this little infinity challenge thing for the infinite mindset. I I have pictures of my grandfather and my family. I Mm. have uh, challenge coins, tokens of of inspiration, all these physical reminders, the the color orange, which is the the color of, of optimism, just a little bead. It means nothing, but I found it and I put it here just to remind me of all the things 
of some of the things that inspire me and and allow my mindset to be right so that my actions are productive, right? And I design systems that help me keep doing it. So uh, yeah, ignorance is bliss. And when you know your why, you're no longer ignorant and you can live with intent. Um, and it's hard and it's imperfect. Uh, and it's always best when there's accountability, right? When you can call up your, your friend and say, I'm having a leadership moment or I'm struggling or I'm focusing on the wrong thing, help me. Um, so that's one piece. What else did you ask here that I've not yet? Yeah, I guess the last point was just your own personal discovery. Was that a surprise ah. to you? Because Dr. Ross was saying some folks at the end of this process for mm -hmm. these general officers, it's, they almost don't believe that, that it's going to work. And then I yeah. guess, you know, almost at the end of this week-long process, uh, it's like, wow, I'm really glad I did that. Like that mm -hmm. was a worthwhile endeavor for me. And I'm just curious, was this a surprise for you to discover that? Or was it like, okay, this all makes sense. This is something that was inside of me, but now yeah. I just have greater clarity on what it is. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the military professionals are so interesting because so much of your identi identity is your, is your MOS, yeah. which makes no sense to anyone who's a civilian. Like none, you know, <laughs> I still don't get it. Yeah. And so, and so we, you're trained, you are what you do, but that's not the case. And so there's a rewiring of, no, what you do simply serves as tangible proof of who you are and, and what you believe. So my, my, my answer to your question might get a little hooey-dooey here. Um, but okay. my, my experience is that when people discover their why, there's typically one of three responses, and I equate it to colors, orange, blue, black. So orange is like, oh my God, yes, like just excited, exuberant. This is it. Yes, you know, I can live this. Wonderful, you know. And there's a difference between discovery and, and living it. You've, you've got to live it and that's endless, right? Which is the reason that this why stuff uh, inspires a legacy that if you live it right, when, you, when your career or life ends, you will be remembered for the impact you've had on others. That's called a life where you lived your, your why. Thanks, Martin Luther King Jr., right? Okay. Um, so that's the first is orange. The, the next is blue, which is like, whoa, powerful, deep, emotional, like you rocked my world. I need to process this. Like, let me go for a walk. Um, and then black is uh, uh, fear because you realize how deeply embedded for a very long time that you've been on a path that's been focused on what and not on why. And the discovery of your why shakes you because you realize that you've been incongruent and inconsistent with your values and beliefs. And wow. that can be hard and painful. Um, and at that point, you, you either, again, remember ignorance is bliss. You're no longer ignorant. You have a choice to make. Now that you know what you know about who you are at your natural best, what are you going to do? Um, and it doesn't mean you need to go through an existential crisis, but you may need to go through an existential flex yeah. where, you know, you may be trained as a lawyer and you may be able to pay your kids college tuition and the mortgage on your house. But can you create shifts in what you do? And, and what you do is not just what you're paid for. It can be hobbies. It can be who you are to your friends and family. Like there's tons of stuff. Yeah. Um, and hopefully this is what work-life balance is. Work-life balance is not the number of hours you work or if you can do hot yoga during lunch, right? Work-life balance is you love who you are at work and you love who you are 
in your life, you know, outside of work. And if you don't, you're just out of balance in one or both of those places. Yeah, that's really good. I, as I've discovered my why, I have just, just for the listeners, I would just say that it has given me clarity that I didn't have before. And it's made decision-making a lot easier, especially in a world where we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. We see, we want to chase the shiny object, the uh, success for someone else. But I think we have to, it's, it's partly for me has been defining what success looks like and fulfillment for me. And that's given me this liberating feeling of, okay, I don't, they can have their why and I want to encourage them to go pursue their why. In fact, I want to support them, resource them, but my why is my why. And I don't have to have someone else's why. I can go and live my life, and be the best cow that I can mm-hmm. possibly be. Uh, and I don't know that for me, especially in a world where we're of comparison, it's really helped me not only be happier and more fulfilled, uh, but it's also given me that clarity of, of, uh, of mission, I guess, moving forward. Well, you're, you're giving a nice nod to Simon's latest book, The Infinite Game, yeah. because... Um, we, as a species, we we just compare. It's very normal. And fortunately, unfortunately, some of the tools we have with social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, yes. it just makes it louder, right? Yes. Um, and, and so it behooves to mention this notion of worthy rival. So when you're when you have your why and you're bringing your why to life and you're leading in an infinite game, an infinite game is one in which there is no end, right? Mm-hmm. Marriage, relationships, well, marriage, there might be an end, but it's when you die. Or it could be a finite marriage and it <laughs> ends with <laughs> separation and divorce. But anyway, there are these games that there's no winning. You can't win marriage. You can't win business. There are wins in business, but you can't say, like, I won. There's no winning global politics, you know? Yeah. If you say we're the, the, the best infantry unit, well, according to what standards and metrics? Because another infantry unit could say, no, 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 we're the best. Yeah. And, and they're absolutely right, but it's it's a moment in time, and there's no winning infantry unit. There's only a head and behind based on metrics that are arbitrary anyway. And so um, it does behoove us to compare ourselves to others, but the question is who? Yeah. And the answer is your worthy rivals. Yeah. That in infinite games, games that have no end, uh, it behooves us to shift our mindset from competition to worthy rivals because in competition there are winners and losers but there are no winners and losers in in infinite games there's only a head and behind and so in infinite games like bringing our why to life um the there is a a competitor and it's yourself the goal as an individual or an organization is to be better next year than you were this year to have a better product better culture better leadership yada 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 and so you can study other players in the game, whether they're in your industry or not, whether they're infinite-minded or finite-minded, so long as you're choosing to compare yourself to others that when you compare, you reveal to yourself an opportunity to improve. Uh, and therein provides the opportunity to use comparison to help you lead better. That's so good. That's, that's gold. Um, well, Stephen, as we're, as we're wrapping up here, um, I appreciate you helping me and my, and our audience get a better sense of, of finding our why, uh, what resources would you recommend folks if they want to kind of go to that next level? Uh, what rec, what resources would you recommend people go to, to discover their why? 
Sure. So we have a few tools that exist and we're coming out with more, especially in these crazy Corona times. Um, so uh, we wrote a book on it called Find, Find Your Why. Simon 10 years ago wrote Start With Why and the biggest criticism was he didn't write a book on how to find your why. He was going to do both, but it was kind of a Kill Bill volume one and volume two thing. It just didn't mesh and work. And so by popular demand, eight years later, uh, we wrote Find Your Why, which literally is the step-by-step -step playbook of how to do it. Um, we also have an online course, which guides you through it if you, if you want that accountability in that type of format. There's another uh, example, another method to start and get in the ballpark on our website at simonsinic.com called the Friends Exercise, where you literally ask people who choose to be your, your friend, the ones that if they called you at 2.30 in the morning, you'd pick up and say, what's wrong? Are you okay? Um, and you ask them, why are you friends with me? And it's this fun process that lasts about 15 minutes or so. And with the prompts and the way that we have the questions designed, the conversation shifts from your friend describing you to them describing the impact that you have on them. They'll start saying things like, I don't even need to be with you. I think of you and I'm more positive. And when you begin to get chills and you have a visceral emotional response, you know that, that they're getting in, in the ballpark. So those are, are three ways there. Um, we just launched, Simon is doing a uh, public Start With Why book club. Uh, so it's focusing on the Start With Why concepts, but following that, we're going to be offering some public workshops virtually for people to come. You can form your own cohort, or you can come as a single and we'll help you self-organize to form a little cohort. We'll do a couple of, of webinars sharing a couple of live workshops really sharing the process with some open office hours in between those webinars and just helping people do this, especially in a time when I think it's really important. That's awesome. Uh, Steven, where's the best place for people to connect with you and the work you're doing? Sure. All roads lead to simonsinic.com. So if you want to learn more about um, Simon, the work we do, myself, we're all there. And I'm on all the, all the places. I'm pretty sure I'm the only Steven Shedletsky in the world <laughs> right now. No way. <laughs> it's one of the benefits of, uh, of having an obscure Polish name. Um, but uh, I'm very active on, on LinkedIn. I'm uh, also Twitter, Instagram, all the, all the fun places. That's awesome. Well, and to the audience, I just want to encourage everyone to please, you owe it to yourself to go and do this process. Uh, even if you're skeptical of it, even if you think, oh, I don't need to find my why. I promise a worst case scenario, you, you go through the process and you know more about yourself. You get to discover these stories from your past and, and those things certainly shape not only who we are today, but where we're heading. And uh, so, Stephen, I want to personally thank you for sharing your why with us today. Thank you for the time you gave us today. Thank you for the work that you and Simon and your team are doing. I was in D.C., I guess it was about a month ago now, and I got to see Simon on his mindset tour. And unfortunately, I'm sure that's been altered with uh, our current events. But uh, I just sincerely appreciate you uh, and your work. And, uh, and thank you. Keep it up. It's making Thanks, a difference. Cal. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks so much for being a champion of the work. I appreciate it. All right, brother. Well, hey, we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch and hopefully we'll have you back on. I Take care, that. buddy. Take care. Hey, friends. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Steven. I got so much out of his insights, out of his perspective on leadership. It was so fun to pick his brain. I want to encourage you to, to really spend some time thinking about your why. Uh, there are several resources and links to books at my website, calwalters.me. 
Go check those out. And I think finding your why and helping your team find their why makes you a more effective leader and makes the people on your team more fulfilled. Hope you go and make this a great day. Remember, life is short. Let's go make it count.